All right. Um, this may be the corniest illustration in the world, but it's one that I appreciate. I shared with our, uh, the guys that were at my uh, little group on uh, Thursday morning uh, this question, just to consider. If you were a flashlight, would you rather be a flashlight at midnight or high noon? If you were a flashlight, would you rather be a flashlight at midnight or high noon? One columnist observed that 2020, which is almost over, by the way, amen, started off like 1974 with an impeachment crisis, quickly became like 1918, a pandemic, then turned into 1929, an economic crash, and is now like 1968, massive urban unrest with everything politicized. And I mean everything politicized. With an unending torrent of bad news, it has been a stressful year. People of God, it is midnight. Whatever you want to be in regards to that question, the news is right now it is officially midnight. And I would argue it's a great time to be a flashlight. Uh, there's a, a poem. I'm not a big poetry guy, but I found a poem this week uh, by William Yates. Uh, this is not the fullness of it. This is just a section of it. It's called The Second Coming. Okay, is anybody familiar with this poem? Second Coming. I see a few head nods. It's pretty great. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. Okay, the gyre is like a spiral. Okay. Turning and turning in the widening spiral, I'll I'll use the replacement word. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Man, these are difficult and dark times, like times I don't remember in my lifetime. Difficult and dark times. And here's the thought for you this morning for the people of God. Not only can the people of God and will the people of God survive these times, we can actually shine. We can actually shine and flourish. And we're actually in a sermon from our Lord from the mount 2,000 years ago via 2401 Jack Finney that's on that very topic, how to shine in dark times. So y'all stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll get into our passage. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us from the mount. Speak to us through this living word. Lord, speak to us in these times and in these moments, in this dark season, in this dark place. Lord, help us hear from you. Shape us, equip us, mobilize us, galvanize us. We pray these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. Y'all can be seated. The plan I have for the morning is to deal with a few observations from this passage. And then we're going to deal with not the the straight and plain teaching from the passage, but something that's implied. And then we're going to walk away with an application. Okay, so that's sort of the outline for the morning. We're going to deal with some observations. We're going to deal with something that's sort of behind the passage. And we'll deal with what's plainly taught next week. And then we'll deal with application. First of all, some observations. I pointed out just moments ago that this is a sermon about flourishing, about the good life, about how to shine in dark times. Jesus was not the first person to ever speak on this. In fact, the philosophers leading up to this moment on the mount were speaking about the good life. People for hundreds of years up to that point had been listening to all these ancient philosophers with their take on how to find the good life. Here's a summary of Epicurus, okay, who was closely or nearly a contemporary of Christ. His take on philosophy, what he was about, what he was doing when he's teaching, he believed that philosophy helps people attain a happy, tranquil life characterized by peace Freedom from fear and the absence of pain. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, I'm in. Anybody else want to sign up for all of the above? Um, Peace, freedom from fear, and the absence of pain. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't be led by the notion of finding happiness and, and flourishing and shalom, as might use the Hebrew word? It appears that people 2,000 years ago were standing on this mount to hear from this ancient philosopher. He's a philosopher at the very least, even if you don't believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He was a philosopher. And the passage begins with he opens his mouth and he starts teaching. Very much a philosophical sort of environment. And he's teaching and preaching on how to find human flourishing. In fact, the passage starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, blessed, blessed. The Greek word there is makarios, which means flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Man, the the list is actually kind of strange. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And right off the bat, it's a message about flourishing, but it is a contrary message. It's very much a sermon about how to find happiness and flourishing. And right embedded in the middle of that sermon is the passage talking about fasting. (laughs) That's weird, isn't it? Human flourishing sermon, right embedded in the middle of it, is actually three things. And I'll give you kind of a little outline of where this falls out in the middle of the sermon. Beginning in verse 6. Let me show you how this plays out. Beginning in, or excuse me, in chapter 6 of verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Okay, so just kind of grab that word, practicing righteousness. Jesus on the mount is dealing with three ways that you can practice righteousness, but specifically speaking to how not to practice them. And here's the first one. When you give to the needy. Okay, the old-fashioned word is giving alms. 
Okay, right embedded within a sermon on how to find human flourishing, how to find happiness, how to find makarios, giving to the poor. Interesting, isn't it? Look forward into verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That's the second thing. First is giving to the needy. Second is praying. Okay, we're not going with anything fancy this morning. Apparently, neither is Jesus 2,000 years ago. Right embedded within a sermon on how to find happiness and human flourishing is, a, is, is our teachings on how to, how, how to give to those in need or alms, how to pray, and now this morning dealing with this thing called fasting. We can't miss right off the top as we're making an observation that if you are looking for happiness, if you're looking for those things, fulfillment, shalom, contentment, all the things that we would hope for that I think we're all looking for as well. How could we imagine that we're going to find them any other place than where he takes them 2,000 years ago? Giving to the poor and the needy. Praying and fasting. Wow. Ancient and simple and sweet. That's the first observation. Right in the middle of a sermon on how to find happiness. We're going to revisit that at the end of the morning. Where this fits in the flow of things is there. he's dealing with three things there. He's dealing with the alms, he's dealing with prayer, and he's dealing with fasting. And that those are ways to practice righteousness. We'll talk about that more next Sunday. But you can make a little mental note now. What does that mean to practice righteousness? That's sort of the outline. Alms, prayer, and fasting. Pretty radical means to flourishing. Isn't it? The passage here, something that I want to bring out that's going to be our guide for us this morning, is the passage deals with the manner of giving to the poor and the manner of public prayer and the manner of fasting, and specifically is dealing with how not to do those things. Okay, Jesus is dealing with the manner, not the matter. The matter is assumed. Okay, I want you to hear that. The matter is assumed for those who are following and wanting to hear from Christ 2,000 years ago. He's assuming that they are giving to the poor. He's assuming that they are praying. And he's assuming that they're fasting. So this morning, the sermon is going to follow the, 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 the issue that I think now in 2020, it's not, it can't be an assumption for us. I don't assume that you're doing that, and you shouldn't even really, you probably wouldn't even assume that I'm doing that regularly. It's not assumed in our context. It was in theirs. So we're going to spend the morning just dealing with the matter of fasting. And next week, we'll deal with the clear teaching of the passage, the manner of fasting, or how not to fast. So this morning, we're going to deal with just the, ma- the matter of fasting. It's clearly drawn out there in verses 16 and 17 when he says, when you fast, is clearly an assumption. And then later in verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. He assumes they're fasting. I think it's so foreign to us that I opted for dealing with it in a whole morning with what's assumed here and dealing with the manner next week. So let's deal with the matter, first of all. Fasting, there's all kind of crazy teaching out there right now. And a lot of it's actually really interesting and like health-oriented. Intermittent fasting, have you heard that in a conversation? You've seen that in the news? Some of you practicing intermittent fasting? 
I've done it. It's, it, it's actually interesting health-wise. Okay, intermittent fasting, uh, that's in the news. Juice fast, have you ever heard anybody talk about a juice fast? Yeah, they turn orange because, you know, you watch them over a period of a couple weeks. I'm doing a juice fast, and they turn it orange because they're, they're, they're drinking so many carrots. <laughs> we actually know somebody. I'm not going to name their names. Uh, actually, he's not here anymore, so it wouldn't hurt anything. Noah Moody, he was, his, his mom was giving him so much juice, he actually turned orange. It's pretty funny. That you got juice fast, okay? We have partial fasts. You know, you might fast from certain things or certain meals. Uh, you might have a day off fasting and a day on fasting. Day, one day off, one day on. Eight hours on, eight hours, or I guess it would be 16 hours fasting, eight hours eating. You know, got all these different fasts. So let's deal with the biblical version of fast because we want to deal with what he's talking about 2,000 years ago. So in some ways we have to kind of climb in there and say, okay, let's get in their context. Okay. First of all, fasting at its most basic uh, sense, the way it's treated in the Bible, is something that we do every night. Now, most of us, <laughs> we do it every night. Uh, I think it was the year 2000, 2001, something like that. I quit dipping Copenhagen. I spent most of my life dipping Copenhagen. And man, it's like the PCP of smokeless tobacco. I mean, it, uh, it, was, uh, and it owned me. All right, I'd quit quitting so many times that I got to, or I'd tried quitting so many times, I finally got to the point where I said I quit quitting. One day I was putting Evan in bed, and um, she was, we, at year 2000, she had been a couple years old or something like that. So, and I'm putting her in bed, and I just had this, this picture that we had an intruder in the home. And what would I do to an intruder being a Marine? Man, I would locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver, of course. And I realized that we do have an intruder in the home in the sense of there's a health risk against her dad that could take her dad's face or her dad's life or her dad's jaw. And it was that moment where I said, I need to quit this thing. And for probably 10 years after that, I'd get up every single night and eat. That's why I'm saying that most of us, that's just a long story that has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just an interesting story. It's interesting to me anyway. But that's where I, uh, I guess, started getting up in the middle of the night and eating. But most of us, unless you're trying to quit dipping or something like that, go all night fasting from food and usually drink. Okay, you might get up and drink some water or something like that. That's what fasting is. We do it every single night, most of us, and we break fast in the morning when we have something to eat. Now, here's what fasting is not. It's not doing without sinful things. Okay, you don't fast from pornography. Okay, that's a sinful thing. It's just sinful. You're just taking a break from sin. Okay, you don't fast from drunkenness. That's not fasting. Okay, we're talking about something that we're fasting from a good thing. Fasting is doing without something that's good and approved and wonderful, of which food is one. Amen? Anybody else like to eat? I mean, this is good news. Let me just give you some windows into the good news that's shared here in the book, the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes about food. These are some of my dearest passages. I'm just going to tell you right now. Here's one. Chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Man, there's an encouragement there to just to enjoy a good meal. Food is good. Amen? <laughs> I've seen some of y'all eat. I know what I'm talking about. Y'all can be a little vocal here, a little engaged. I know how people eat up in this, up in this house. 
Shoot, we had some people over for dinner this week. I know firsthand. All right, now here's a couple other passages. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 18. You can just listen to these. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Man, enjoy a good meal. Food is really good. Here's a couple more passages. 8, 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. And then in chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Food is a good thing. Let's start right there. But here's the problem. Man, since the beginning of time, has had a problem with food. It would, ta- it, it, it would be like us to mess up a really good thing, right? Man, since the beginning of time, has had a problem with food. You know the story of the Exodus. The people of God have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God leads them out in the Exodus, and they start complaining. You remember what they're pining for? The, the, the metaphor of their grumbling was they're pining for leeks and melons back in Egypt. Man, their appetites are saying, I hate this freedom thing. Can we go back to slavery where I can eat my leeks and my melons? Think about the fast forward to the time of Hosea, the time that a book is literally about whoredom. And the visual aid there, the metaphor of the idolatry is the raisin cakes under every green tree. You've left your husband and your groom for raisin cakes. Man has had a problem with food since the very beginning. It makes me think about Edmund. You know, the Edmund falling for the Turkish delight. Man, C.S. Lewis nailed it right there. We've had a problem since the beginning of time. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was good to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Food is a good thing, but we have problems with food. Enter the spiritual discipline of fasting. Hmm. Man, it hits the nail on the head. Fasting was very common in ancient times. Fasting was often uh, something that practiced in conjunction with festivals and holidays. The Day of Atonement, the people of God fasted. A lot of times when they were facing some sort of um, calamity, either a natural disaster or a calamity from some foreign army or something like that, they would fast. It was very common for ancient Israel, ancient, ancient Israelites to fast. Even in the time of Christ, in Luke chapter 18, there's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And you remember what the Pharisee claimed? I give my tithes, I fast twice a week. Fasting was very common and very familiar in this time, which is why I think our Lord doesn't deal with the matter of fasting in the sermon, but deals with the manner of fasting. I found that there was actually a practice of fasting for rain. Okay, even in the time of Christ, they would, in first century uh, Judaism, they would recruit guys to pray for rain. And it's pretty funny, the accounts of someone who actually prayed for rain and it actually rained, okay, like immediately, that's like, uh, they became like celebrities, like Michael Jordan of prayer. I mean, they were awesome. They had like a, 
this is a true story. They even came up with a tennis shoe line for the, this guy that prayed. I mean, he was high top, suede. All the kids were wearing them. It was a big deal. This guy was a celebrity. Man, you guys are tough this morning. Seriously, y'all need to loosen up. I, I thought that was funny. I couldn't wait to share that with y'all, but that, that, was, that was a dud. I think it's pretty funny, the Michael Jordan of prayer. With my vast sports knowledge, I really dug deep there, and that's what really hacks me off is that y'all didn't see the humor in that, but we'll, we'll press on. All right, so it was practiced in the early church, okay? It was practiced in the early church. Here's a few windows. Uh, you can actually turn to Matthew chapter 9 and be ready for something. Okay, this is where we're getting into the sweet spot of the sermon. Okay, this has all kind of been getting us ready for where are we going with this. Okay, it was practiced in the early church. This is just a little context for you. Uh, you can be listening to these passages as you're getting ready for what we're going to look at over there in Matthew chapter 9. In Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, there were in the church at Antioch, this is the early church context, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Okay, and then they, then they fasted and prayed. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. It was a practice in the early church that fasting and prayer was associated with identifying those they would send out and then with the actual sending. Okay, the next page gives another little window into the early church practices. Chapter 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, in this context, uh, Paul had been moving around the Roman Empire. They've been identifying elders in each churches, in the churches in uh, Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And when they appointed elders to the work, what they do over them? They prayed and they fasted for a period of time. It was practiced in the early church. Sending workers and appointing elders. Here's something pretty sweet. We're about to get to Matthew chapter 9, but I'm going to kind of, this, this is going to butter you up. This is where, for me, it really, this whole thing just really kind of came full circle. In Luke chapter 2, there's a story of an older woman that was looking for Jesus. She's looking for the birth of the Christ child. Okay, there's an older man associated with her. Not, not, they're not together, but they were both looking for Christ. The older man's name was Simeon. You might be familiar with him. The woman's name was Anna. And let me just tell you a little bit about Anna. In chapter 2, verse 36, it says that she was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. This woman is looking for Jesus, literally, and she's fasting and praying. She's looking for Jesus, and she's fasting and praying. Okay, now, I had you in Matthew chapter 9. Let's look at that passage, beginning in verse 14 and 15. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do, why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. Jesus is being asked by the followers of John, 
why his disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Well, because they're with me. Because they're right here in my presence. They're celebrating sort of the contrary picture of mourning where he's not with them. Because they will mourn in his absence. And they will fast in his absence, he promises. But when he's with them, why fast? So here's where this thing is going this morning. I think we get a little tutor, a little tutoring from Anna. A little tutoring from this account where the followers of John asked Jesus about his disciples. I think what I sort of gleaned from this, I think this is in a, maybe a devotional sense. In a devotional sense, fasting may be a fitting option when Christ seems far away. This is the point where I put on preacher hat staying over there. Pastoral hat. Is right here. I'm wearing pastoral hat right now. The number of times that I've heard from people in this room and those that are joining us online in the last 17 years is he seems so far away. I don't know when the last time I really experienced the presence of the Lord was that this little devotional window could give an, a blessing. It could be a tremendous blessing to someone who's searching for Christ. So my pastoral encouragement at this moment is that we can find something here that I think will be a treasure for the people of God. It was good enough for 2,000 years ago as a way to practice righteousness, and it's got to be good enough now where it's assumed then as a matter, as something that we should bring forward into 2020 and maybe consider together as the people of God what God might do with us when Christ seems far away, is that fasting might be a way that you can find him again. You know, there are ways that husbands and wives can do this. I'll share a passage with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a little marriage counseling, but it's also worship counseling. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay? He's talking about marriage matters now. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think there's a devotional message that comes out of this notion of fasting where we can see it in a couple that fasts from being together intimately so that they can find Jesus again. So that they can seek him and find him. So they can see his face or they can see some clarity on something that's obscure. Where they can sense his presence again, maybe as a marriage, as a family. Where together they say, we're going to abstain from a good thing like food. In this case, it's being together intimately 
in a marriage. We're going to abstain from a good thing so that we can rediscover and recalibrate and find the best thing again because we've lost sight of him. Fasting for renewal is a whole new concept for me. A couple years ago, um, Aaron Sherman uh, actually put out to our church a time of fasting. You may remember that in the life of our church. We were going through something regarding our leadership, and Aaron put it out in front of our church for fasting. And uh, it was sometime after that I mentioned to Aaron that I'd never fasted before, and he was uh, surprised that I hadn't fasted through that season. And I confessed to him. I, I leaned on the whole, I'm with the bridegroom. Why would I fast? Response. But now I'm seeing that there are occasions in my own life where he seems far away, where this could be the place where I can recalibrate, where I can find him again, where I can discover him again, where I incorporate and recruit my stomach in the search, that God might use that in a way that nothing else would. What we're doing is passing on what usually satisfies us so that we can be reminded of just how satisfying he is. The Gnostics were a, a, a false teaching. Um, the Gnosticism was a false teaching in the early church, and the Gnostics separated the physical from the spiritual. If you're familiar with Gnosticism, it creeps into our own thinking all the time. We separate the physical from the spiritual. So I'm going to be not Gnostic in the next few minutes. I'm going to talk physical for a moment. We're not just talking about spiritual matters when we gather, but we should also be considering physical matters, okay? And here's a little lesson from our human body on what happens when you fast, okay? When you don't fast, let's start there. When you don't fast and you're constantly inundated with food, especially carbohydrates, you're constantly overfed, what happens is your insulin stops working. This thing that's supposed to regulate your glucose levels, it actually stops working, and you become what some of y'all might be familiar with, a type 2 diabetic. You might even have to supplement insulin, your body-produced insulin, with um, you know, injections of insulin. Type 2 diabetes is, a, is one of the byproducts of being overfed. Uh, other issues is you can be overweight. Um, you have uh, all kinds of biomechanical issues involved there. Um, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, all kinds of potential for stroke. All kinds of things go with that. Okay, so here's the beauty of intermittent fasting for someone who struggles with that sort of perfect storm of problems where they're overfed and insulin's not working. One of the things you can do under, under doctor supervision, mind you, is intermittent fasting because what it does to your body is you recalibrate. Your insulin starts working again because it has a chance to have a break from the inundation of food. So I think just considering, just at least as an illustration that the body might have something to tell us about the heart and the soul. If our bodies can recalibrate where things start working again, then maybe to our souls, if we're not going to be Gnostic and believe that they actually tie together, that God might do something with our soul as well in that venture of fasting. So here's the application for the morning. Okay? Simple. comes right from the passage in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 17 and 18. We can draw it right, of that, right out of there. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who's in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a couple things that we can draw out of this passage and the first one is that we should fast secretly. You ever seen the video of the, the gal that ran a marathon and didn't tell anybody? <laughs> it's one of the funny things I've ever seen. Man, just... 
we are glory junkies, aren't we? We want everybody to know about our hard things that we do. I mean, I've done it. But in regards to fasting, let's follow his guide here where it's assumed that we're doing it and we do it secretly. Not only should we not tell anybody, we should actually do the opposite. And we should wash our face and fix our hair up and make it look like we just had a big old meal. Shouldn't have our face all gloomy looking, all contorted, but we should fast secretly. Pass on a meal or two without let anyone know that you're doing it and look full while you're at it. Face washed and eyes bright and enjoy the reward from the Lord. And I would say that right now the reward there is his presence. You can find him in that place where you look for him with your heart and your stomach. Secondly, fast with a purpose and a plan. If you just skip a meal, then your body may get a benefit, your insulin might kick in, and that's all great, but you're missing out on the spiritual connection there. Remember, we want to incorporate the both of those. And the notion there of fasting apart from actually applying that time and applying yourself in that time is missing the point. If you're fasting without a purpose and a plan, then you're just making yourself hungry. If you're abstaining from something uh, that, that, that's good for the purpose of pursuing Christ, then spend that time you would be eating or the time you would be preparing a meal reading his word, praying, maybe journaling. Maybe in that moment you could go to the Sermon on the Mount and enjoy the Sermon on the Mount and enjoy the Lord of the Sermon, being very purposeful and, intent, and, and with intention using that time where you're pursuing the Lord of the sermon. It's redirecting appetites is what biblical fasting should be. It's redirecting appetites and attentions purposefully to the person and work of Christ. So here's the closing thoughts. Right here in the middle of a sermon on the good life, on flourishing, on uh, finding happiness and shalom are these teachings of giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. I think these are the human are the hidden jewels of human flourishing. The hidden jewels of human flourishing. I cannot tell you, back over here where I was wearing my pastoral hat, I can't tell you the number of times in the last 17 years where I've heard from many of you, he seems so far away, I don't, I don't know how I can find him, where I've encouraged reading, I've encouraged prayer, but I do not once have encouraged fasting, and that's changing. That's changing as of this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I think we have a treasure in this space where we can involve our heart and our stomach in the pursuit of of Christ. If you're discontent and unhappy, if you've lost your joy and makarios and flourishing and happiness are far from you, if Christian contentment seems far away, maybe you could follow and pursue Christ with all your heart and at least some of your stomach at times and find him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this just simple teaching. Thankful that um, we have uh, something that we can do as the people of God where we purposefully and in, with intention set our appetites aside and redirect very normal and good appetites toward the greatness of our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that in that, or we thank you, I should say, in that, that we find you. 
that you manifest yourself in those moments, that you're present in those moments, and that you bless us in those spaces like Anna finding you at the temple that day. Lord, I pray for folks in this room that um, may be struggling with feeling like Christ is far away, that we together can walk out just some very simple, in the name of Christ, and as an act of worship and in response to our identity with Christ, that we can do some simple things like giving to those who have need, praying, and fasting. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen.